0: Welcome to Montrose Bible Church. We're so glad you've chosen to join us as Pastor Matt and other church leaders challenge us with a message from God's Word. This morning we continue our sermon series from the book of Matthew. As Jesus demonstrates his miraculous power in Lower Galilee. Just last week, we took a closer look at the way Jesus, or more accurately, Jesus and his apostles fed 5,000 men. It turns out that account is part of a larger transitional movement where the Lord calls his own to an increased level of participation in the gospel mission. Christ cleansed the leper mobilized the paralytic and cast out the demons with a word? Or when he stopped up the hemorrhage, restored the blind man and raised the dead girl back to life? Well, the disciples were only in a position to observe what Jesus was doing. But as he prepares to pass the baton more and more to the twelve, he invites them and us to participate In his miraculous work. Oh, but they are going to need much more faith. Much more confidence. Much more assurance in order to do so. Something Christ is faithful to give them. As they receive his revelation in the midst of a storm. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 14. And follow along as we read God's word together, beginning in verse 22. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. May God bless the reading of his word. And before we... Dive into the particulars of this account, it would be instructive for us to consider the structure within which we find our text. Immediately prior to this encounter at sea, Jesus and his disciples were in the midst of a great crowd. People had come from far and wide to see the works of the Nazarene, and Jesus did not disappoint. Not only did he heal their sick, as we were told back in verse 14 of this chapter, they also watched as Christ performed his most famous miracle of multiplication, turning five loaves and two fish into a feast fit for thousands. But as the day drew to its close, the Lord sent both the disciples and the crowds away. Isn't that what we are told in verse 22? That immediately after collecting what was left over of the meal, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. Now Matthew does not tell us exactly why the group was dispersed so abruptly. But John does. In his parallel account, We're told the people were intending to come and take Jesus by force to make him king. That's why Jesus broke up this party so quickly. To silence their political ambitions. To subvert their political agenda. To squash their political uprising before it got its start. It turns out, despite Christ's revelation in the feeding of the 5,000, well, that is all the crowd would ever see in him. A gifted speaker, a miraculous worker, and a promising politician. That was the impression of the general populace, immediately before this account at sea. And the same is true of the people who rub shoulders in what immediately followed. In verses 34 through 36, we're told about the men of Gennesaret who saw Christ only as a divine healer. When they had crossed over, they came to this land on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all that surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak And as many as touched it were cured. Now, there is no doubt that those people saw something extraordinary in Jesus. But they didn't realize fully who he was. To them, he was the heaven sent physician. Who had the power to heal their sick, but probably not a whole lot more. That was true of the crowds before and the crowds after. They received only a partial revelation of Christ's identity. And in some way, Jesus could afford to send them away with only that limited understanding. But not his closest followers, not his chosen few. They needed to go further, press deeper, to see and know and worship Jesus in full. That's why Matthew pushes the crowds out to the periphery so he can focus on this key, central text where Jesus reveals his true nature to the twelve, that revelation is such a critical, critical component, not only to the disciples' faith, but to ours as well. Because as we see very clearly in this morning's narrative, until you recognize who Jesus is, you will remain in constant fear. I'll take a look at back at verse 22 again. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds from the feeding away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat that the disciples had embarked on previously was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, they said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. Now, last week we considered the content of Jesus' mountaintop prayer knowing it must have included an expression of thanksgiving and gratitude for the miracle previously performed. But in our time of study, we never inquired as to the length of that prayer. It would appear that this is no five-minute utterance atop the hillside. No, based on the timeline provided here, we get the impression that Jesus was alone before the Father, for nine or ten hours straight. You see, in accordance with Roman military time, the ninth was divided into four watches of three hours each. The first watch began at 6 p.m. and ended at 9. The second watch ran from 9 to 12. The third watch from 12 to 3 a.m. And the fourth watch from 3 a.m to 6 a.m. From the time Jesus sent the disciples aboard the boat to the time that he ventured out to meet them, well, it was a considerable period. Not only as we think of the Lord's communal solitude, but also as we turn our focus back to the 12. It would seem that for the entire duration of Christ's 9- or 10-hour prayer time, The disciples were battling this storm. Well, they had made some progress against the crashing waves and the contrary wind, enough to give them a long distance from the land. But under normal circumstances, by 3 a.m., they had no business even being on the water. They might have even sailed to Gennesaret few times and back again so already we know these men are tired already we know these men are stressed and in that moment of need the Lord Jesus comes to offer his assistance but they don't know it's him Well, they see someone walking toward them on the water. They see something headed their way. But because they don't recognize Jesus, because they don't discern properly who he is, they're filled not with comfort or confidence, but with panic and fear that's what we're told in verse 26, that when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. Well, yeah, who else could this be? Clearly, this person is of the supernatural variety. He's from the spiritual realm, no doubt. And his authority must extend over all of creation. Is there anyone I know who meets that description? Who might have some interest in the goings-on of this boat? I'm eh, not sure I can think of anyone at the moment. So it must be an apparition. That was the conclusion of the disciples in the middle part of the first century. And in some way, well, it remains the conclusion of many people in and around the church today. Even if they recognize there is something supernatural in the things they are hearing, in the things they are seeing, in the things that they are experiencing, well, they're terrified of what that might mean for them. Because they don't yet know the person of Jesus Christ. And if you don't know the person of Jesus Christ. If you can't distinguish him from any of the other sordid spirits. Then you ought to be afraid. Because there is no help. There is no comfort. There is no salvation. In any of those ghostly apparitions. Only In the Lord our God, Jesus Christ. Yes? Until you recognize who Jesus is, you will remain in constant fear. But once he reveals himself to you, well, that fear turns to courage. Take a look at verse 27. After the disciples cried out in fear, well, immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Christ's exhortation to take courage and do not be afraid bracket the central reason these scared, storm-weary disciples can find peace in their terrifying situation. It's not because the wind died down all of a sudden. It's not because the waves stopped crashing against the boat. It's because of just three... Little words. It is I. Actually, according to the Greek language, Jesus spoke only two words in making his identity known to the disciples. Two words that revealed more to them than all the other teachings. All the other healings, all the other ministries combined. Those two words egoemi egoemi. Now, because we are English speakers, and these words get translated in various ways in our language, we might not fully appreciate the significance of them just by hearing. But you can be sure, the disciples who heard those words spoken on the Sea of Galilee, they understood exactly what Jesus was intending. You see, both of those words, when taken on their own, mean, I am. As though Jesus was saying here, I am as I am. I am what I am. I am who I am. Ego go, And perhaps at that now, you're beginning to hear what the disciples heard at Jesus' utterance. It was not just a greeting to announce his arrival. It was a grand revelation of his identity. For there is absolutely no doubt that upon hearing those two words in sequence from the mouth of Jesus, that their hearts and minds would have immediately hearkened back to the self-evident name of God that was revealed to their forefathers in the Exodus. They say, well, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, though. All but a handful of chapters, which are in Aramaic. The Old Testament, including the book of Exodus, was written in Hebrew. True. But the Hebrew Old Testament is not what the apostles would have studied growing up. Their exposure to the ancient text came through the Septuagint. That is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. That's what they would have memorized as children. That's what they had familiarized themselves with all their lives. And how does the one true and living God refer to himself? In Exodus chapter 3 verse 14 of their Septuagint, I think we have it for you on the screen. And he said, God to Moses, I am who I am. 1,500 years before these men boarded a boat, Yahweh used these words to reveal himself to the nation of Israel as the one true, self-evident, eternally existent God of the universe. And now the disciples hear these same identifying words again. Yes, I'm a miracle worker. Yeah, I'm a divine healer. Yes, I'm something supernatural, as you have supposed But I am much, much more than that. I am God himself, he says. That's what the disciples would have understood. That the one standing before them, Jesus, and the one revered by their forefathers, Yahweh, are of the exact same essence. And they didn't need to rely on this one verse in Exodus to draw that conclusion. Now, those words appear elsewhere in the writings and the prophets as well. Perhaps the most revelatory occurrence is found in Isaiah chapter 43, where the Lord declares, You are my witnesses and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. From those same words in the Septuagint, Egoemi. And listen now to what is prophesied. Not just about God in general, but as the disciples are beginning to make this connection, listen to what is said about Jesus the Son. He says, before me there was no God formed. And there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am He, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? now we know why their fear has suddenly gone. The Lord of all creation, the one and only Savior, the God whose acts cannot be undone. He just announced his arrival in their boat with a personal interest in each one of them. And friends, Christ will show up that same way in your life too. If you'll only open your eyes and your ears to understanding. He will show up. He will reveal himself. And he will change your trajectory. Not just for a moment, but for all eternity. Now just look at the effect Christ's presence had on Peter. Peter that day he like the other disciples were terrified by this apparition on approach and then Jesus says I'm here and I'm God and at that all of a sudden the man who was cowering in fear just a second ago has courage enough to climb out of the boat on stormy waves and walk on the water. Peter had absolutely no power or ability within himself to do that. If he had climbed over the hall before Jesus came on the scene, he would have plunged down directly into the seafloor. But with the knowledge of Christ, Empowered by Christ. Peter can walk on water. Indeed. Because his presence. Is our assurance. Once we acknowledge him as the one. True. God. Do you see? So you recognize who Jesus is you will remain in constant fear. Once he reveals himself to you, that fear turns to courage. But when your focus turns to other things, you will find yourself back in that same old struggle. Take a look at the first part of verse 30. Peter said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come, Peter, gets out of the boat, walks on the water, and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, Peter became frightened again and began to sink. Now, interestingly enough, for as much fame as this account has garnered, Matthew is the only gospel writer to mention Peter's outside-the-boat experience. Mark speaks only of the storm and its passing, and John likewise. Only Matthew records Peter's stepping out onto the water and sinking then at sea. Of course, Peter's journey began with great promise. As he makes this bold request of the Lord Jesus. If indeed you are God and you have bestowed on us some of your power, then I'll join you out there atop the waves. Just ask me to come, Lord, and I'll come. That took tremendous amounts of courage. And we credit Peter for that. Not only did he have what it takes to step out of the vessel... He remains the only man in history, other than Jesus, to actually walk on water. Isn't that true? We don't know exactly how many steps he took in Jesus' direction. We can't be exactly sure how far Peter got, but there's no doubt. His journey of faith started well here And with great promise. So, what happened? Well, the same thing that happens to many of us today. He lost sight of Jesus in the midst of everything else that was going on around him, and his faith proved too weak too immature, too shaky, to persevere through the storm. Peter got out of the boat. He walked on water. He came toward Jesus, we're told. And you could not come up with a better beginning. But seeing the wind, or literally seeing the strength of the wind, Peter became frightened, just as he was before, and he began to, to sink understand friends this is what happens in the storms of life our faith is tested and all too often it fails to keep us afloat after all everyone's faith is firm at the outset what does that faith look like when adversity comes knocking at your door that's when you know. When you're tried in the furnace of affliction, as the Lord says in Isaiah 48. That's when you know the strength of your resolve, the true metal of your faith. Peter's was found wanting. And whatever faith he had was strong enough to get him out of the boat. Yeah, but it wasn't strong enough to stand up in the storm. That's why Jesus calls him a man of little faith, as he does at the end of verse 31. Because like so many of us, Peter's was a distracted faith. Peter's was a fair weather kind of faith. Peter's was an I'll walk with you only until it gets too difficult kind of faith. And in a relationship with Christ Jesus, that kind of faith simply will not do. Are you there? Till you recognize who Jesus is, you will remain in constant fear. Once he reveals himself to you, that fear turns to courage. But when your focus turns to other things, you'll find yourself back in that same old struggle. And yet, by God's grace and mercy, if you realize that you are in trouble and cry out to him, Christ will deliver you out of your distress. Take a look at verse 30 again. Seeing the wind, Peter became frightened. Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, Save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? With faith too weak to stand any longer, facing hardships too great for him to overcome, Peter realizes he is not going to make it on his own. And it's in that exact moment when you realize you can do nothing that you remember the one who can do all things. So you cry out to him, Lord, save me. In your desperation, in your weakness, in your dysfunction in your addiction in your brokenness in your complete inability to go one step more you cry out to Jesus Lord save me. It's not the longest prayer that will ever cross your lips. It's not the most eloquent nor is it the most theologically astute. But if it's real It is by far the most important. A cry for Christ's salvation. After realizing you are drowning in a sea of sin and hopelessness. With no other means of rescue at your disposal. Lord, hear me. Lord, save me. Lord, rescue me from my Despair. That was the cry of Peter in this account at the Sea of Galilee. But just as it was for the Psalmists in the pre-incarnate Christ era. Save me, O God, we read in Psalm 69, verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I've sunk in deep mire and there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters and a flood overflows me. Stretch forth your hand from on high, we read in Psalm 144. Rescue me and deliver me out of great waters, out of the hand of aliens and strangers. He sent from on high, Psalm 18. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. Once again, Jesus connects his work of deliverance with the God of deliverance revealed in the Old Testament, proving to the disciples and to us once more that they really are one in the same. For what does Jesus do when he hears Peter's heartfelt plea for salvation? Well, he stretches out his hand And takes hold of him. From the Greek word, epilomanomai, which means literally to lay hold or take possession of. That's what Christ does when you call to him in earnest. He takes you into his possession and he carries you into his rest. That's what we find the end of this encounter, a newfound calm has taken over as Jesus leads Peter back to the boat. A newfound calm that was not there before. Yes. Until you recognize who Jesus is, you will remain in constant fear once he reveals himself to you, that fear turns to courage. But when your focus turns to other things, you'll find yourself back in that same old struggle again. And yet, by grace and mercy, if you realize you're in trouble and cry out to him, Christ will deliver you out of your distress. And when he does, when he lays hold of you, You worship him like never before. Take a look at verse 32 again. When Jesus and Peter got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. Well, now we have finally reached the true climax of this story. It's not when Peter is rescued, because the other gospel writers don't even mention that in their account. Nor is it the storm being stilled, because we've seen that in other places. Well, the true climax of this encounter at sea is here. Verse 33 when the disciples rightly acknowledge and worship Jesus as the one and only Son of God. Turns out this is the first time in the book of Matthew the disciples address Jesus using this title. And not just the first time. It is the only time in his entire gospel record. Because they just now made the connection. Just now, when Jesus showed up and said, Egoi me, I am who I am. Just now, when Jesus proved to be the deep water deliverer prophesied in the Psalms. Just now, when Jesus takes his place as Lord over all the created world. Just now, they bow before him in worship and declare, you are certainly God's son. It's the only fitting response to revelation and recognition such as this. So what are you waiting for? If you know who Jesus is, if he has revealed himself to you as the son of the one true and living God, commit your every moment to worship and exaltation. It is the only fitting response to revelation and recognition such as this. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are reminded by way of your word this morning, we are reminded of how desperate we are without you in our lives. We are crashed to and fro like infants atop the waves by any wind of doctrine, every troublesome detail, everything that might possibly get in our way. Lord, any faith that we do have that gets us out of the boat is found wanting. Lord, we realize our absolute hopelessness and desperation apart from you but we thank you for revealing your son, Jesus, to us. We thank you. We have one sent from heaven that we can call upon in times of distress. We thank you that we have the name of the one and only Savior that there will ever be. The name, Jesus. And we are so very thankful that we, depraved, lost, hopeless as we are, that we can call on him. What a privilege, what an opportunity. We thank you for it. Lord, I pray that no one in this room today would waste it. Lord, that we would not miss out on the greatest privilege there ever could be. Lord, that we would cry out, Lord, save me. And at that, that we get the opportunity to watch you work. Lord, continue to involve yourselves in our lives. Continue to show up, we pray. More than that, help us to see you because you are there. And we thank you for it. So, Lord, we pray that you'd continue to be exalted every moment and every day in our midst, that our lives would properly give credence to who you and your son, Jesus, are. We acknowledge him as your son, and we lift him to his rightful place. May that be true of us now and every day we move forward. We breathe these things to you in the name of Jesus. Amen thank you for joining us I trust you've been blessed by the study of God's word for more information about Montrose Bible Church visit our website montrosebiblechurch.org